As many of you know, uh, Cole's father passed away yesterday, but he was down with him uh, much of the week. They're here this morning, but um, he was with his dad most of the week and, and not uh, at a place to prepare a sermon. So I was grateful for the opportunity to be able to step into that. Um, I'm going to be praying for the Huffman family. A lot of families, a lot, of, a lot going on in our church, isn't there? There's, just a, there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of sickness. Uh, just people facing surgeries, facing a lot of things. It just seems we have these seasons where it seems like there's just an onslaught of things. And we seem to be in one of those seasons now. We need to be praying for one another. We need to be praying uh, for and, and with one another. Find opportunities to, to gather with friends and pray, and whether it's in Sunday school classes or elsewhere. Uh, use the, that ministry of intercession for one another. I don't know what your word that you use for it is. Maybe it's tempted. Maybe it's tested. Maybe spiritual warfare is a word you would use. Maybe put through the ringer or put to the test. Battered, buffeted, or as my, my dad used to say, rode hard and put up wet was his expression. You pick your term. You pick the term that you would use for the most extreme testing, for the most extreme uh, onslaught of the enemy that you have ever known. And that's what we're going to talk about. Because that's what Jesus is predicting here. The word he uses here is the word sifted. We'll talk in a minute about what that means. But in Luke chapter 22, he starts, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. There's only, there's some bleak news here. But not only bleak news, there's also some fantastic news here as well. There's this ominous prediction of this sifting that's going to take place. There's a glorious assurance, though, of ultimate victory, that it ultimately doesn't end in a crisis of sorts. This is a very, very intimate exchange between Jesus and the remaining disciples, not just with Peter. It's intimate and it's hard, and it's a difficult word to share. And what he basically says with them is, as I think Tommy Nelson, if you've ever heard him speak, what he would say, how he would say it is, fellers, it's about to get tough. That's what, he, that's what he's really saying to them. Fellers, it's about to get tough. It's about to get really, really hard. Not that there hadn't been a lot of hard before now, but it's about to get really hard in a way that they've not known before. So let's look at what's happening here in verse 31 in this ominous prediction where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan's demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He singles out Simon by name and emphatically does it by saying his name twice, but he's not just talking to Simon here. He's not just talking to Peter. Because what happens here, it's a little bit of an interesting play on words. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. And when he says you, he says that in the plural form. So he's not just talking to Simon Peter in this. He singles him out by name, but he's talking to the whole group. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm a little rusty on my Greek, but I'm pretty sure that that word you there literally translates y'all. And what he's saying here is he's saying, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have y'all. And he's saying it to the whole group that's there. Now listen, there's some powerful words in this warning. This is not something light 
being said here. This is not uh, a, a simple thing that, you know, you're going to go through a little hard test here. These are, that little phrase is packed. And what he says is Satan has demanded to, to have you. He's demanded the opportunity that he might sift you like wheat. The word demanded, the ESV and the NS and New American Standard uses, captures it very well. Now, if you're reading from the NIV, it says asked. If you're reading from the King James, it says that he desires to have you. Those aren't necessarily quite as, as good a translation, so they don't really capture the strength of what's going on here. That Satan has come and demanded the opportunity to sift them. What the, what the lighter translations, the translations that don't carry the strength of that word demanded, the problem is, is reading that, you can easily miss the brazen arrogance of the enemy. That he would demand of Almighty God, his creator, the right to literally place on trial God's children. The, light, the right to literally bring them up on charge. Not a trial with the civilians of a courtroom, but a trial, a testing by fire. The Amplified Bible is helpful here. It says, Simon, Simon Peter, listen, Satan has asked excessively that all of you be given up to him. Now look, watch this, out of the power and keeping of God that he might sift all of you like grain. Satan is demanding that they be removed from, out from under God's protection so that he can try them and prove their unfaithfulness. So that he can try them and, and bring them to a breaking point. What happens when wheat gets sifted? What happens when that occurs? The sifting of wheat is literally this violent beating and this violent shaking to separate the bad from the good, to separate the useful from the useless. It's to try, and Satan's whole purpose here, his whole desire here is the purpose and desire to separate these followers of Christ from Christ, to separate them from their commitment to, commitment to God. This accuser of the brethren is condemning the uncondemnable, saying some of them won't stick, and I'll prove it if you just let me at them. I will separate them from you. They will forsake you if you let me at them. That's what he's demanding. He's demanding the opportunity to go after these followers of Christ to bring such hardship on them, such temptation, such testing, whatever word you use, to pound and shake them to the point of their faith breaking and their separating from God. And he's saying, God, they're not that strong. If you let me, if you give me the opportunity, I'll show you. That's pretty brazen, isn't it? Well, what is this glorious assurance of ultimate victory in verse 32? Because he goes on to say, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. He says, Simon Peter and the rest of you, Satan's asked excessively, he's demanded that he have access to you to sift you like grain. But now he says, but I've prayed for you. And in verse 32, it's interesting 
how the pronoun changes. In verse 32, all of a sudden, he goes to the singular. And now he has said, Simon, Simon, Satan's asked to, has demanded the opportunity to sift all of you. But Simon Peter, I've prayed for you. He singles him out. So we've moved from the addressing of the eleven to addressing the one. You see, Christ knows what's coming for Peter. He knows the devastation of, of, of spirit that Peter is about to experience. Now, in verse 33, Peter denies that that can possibly happen. He says, no, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never deny you. I, no, give me prison. Give me death. I'll never deny you. In verse 34, Jesus says, oh, actually, you will. Actually, you'll do it before the cock crows three times. See, Christ tells them in verse 31 what Satan has asked for. Now, I'm thinking when he says this is what Satan has requested, when he says that in verse 31, they didn't have verse numbers in the conversation, but when he says that in verse 31, I'm thinking that the next thing they're hoping to hear out of Jesus' mouth is, but we told him no. We told him he couldn't because that's what I'd want to hear. We told him no. See, we don't want to go through that kind of experience. People ask me sometimes, you know, what is your view of the end times? You know, what do you think is going to happen? I said, man, I am thoroughly premillennial, pre-trib, because that's how I want it to be. I want out before the trouble starts. That's my main reason for being pre-mill and pre-trib. Get me out of here before the persecution really starts. See, we don't want to go through these kind of things. We don't want to go through that suffering. We don't want to go through that buffeting. We don't want to go through that sifting process, that pounding, that shaking. We don't want to go through that kind of testing. We used to have a, used to have a professor in college. He would always say, if faith not tested can't be trusted. Faith not tested can't be trusted. Every time he would come to a passage where there was a, a struggle, where one of God's choice servants was experiencing something that might give rise to an opportunity to say no to God and say, I don't want any part of that. He would always say, but a faith not tested can't be trusted. But he doesn't tell them we told him no. He tells them something that in a lot of ways is better. What he tells them is that Satan's demanded permission to sift you like grain, and we've given it to him. But Peter, I've prayed especially for you. I've prayed especially for you. He singles Peter out. I don't think that means he didn't intercede for the others. But why does he single Peter out? Why does he look at him specifically? Because Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He knows that Satan's greatest onslaught is reserved for Peter. He knows that the enemy knows that God has a special role for Peter in leading his peers. He knows that Peter doesn't stand a chance without his intercession for him. And so he intercedes. He knows the things that Peter is going to have to endure, what he is going to have to accomplish. He knows what's ultimately before him and before him beyond the garden, beyond the courtyard of betrayal. 
He knows what is out there for Peter. He knows what Peter needs to do. He knows what Peter has to go through in order to get there. He knows how difficult, how violent and vicious the, the onslaught is going to be. And he knows there's going to be a fumble. But he knows that's going to be a part of a preparation for Peter. And he's praying that Peter's faith, though it may falter, will not fail. Listen, folks, a faltering faith is not a failing faith. Don't get that confused. To lose one's footing, to lose one's bearing, is not to lose one's faith. Most of us, most of us are going through to go through some period in our life where we question things. We are going to go through some period in our life where we wonder, is this real? Is this true? I talk to people all the time who are like, I don't know if I really even know the Lord. I've done everything I know to do. I've, I'm trusting Christ. The only answer I would know to give if, you know, to, the, to the why should I let you in heaven question is that I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone, but I just don't feel it. And I've messed up so bad. I've made such a mess of things. I've made such a mess of my life. I've made such a mess in my family, in my marriage. I've made such a mess of so many things. It can't possibly be that I am truly still in Christ. And that's a faltering faith. It may be a sign of a faith that's failing, but it is not a failing faith. God is more gracious than that. You know, slipping and falling like we all do does not require that we roll back down to the bottom of the hill. I remember when I first came here, I was a youth pastor many years ago, and um, I used to do things like walk in with a, with a wheelbarrow full of uh, with a, with a giraffe in it or something like that. Uh, the, the youth pastors get those nods, you know, that's, that's what, the fun part of it. Um, got talked into going down in the Wolf River Bottoms biking, and uh, we came to this one place where there was this big muddy hill and we had to, there was no riding up that hill. The only way to get up that hill was to lay on your belly in the mud and push your bike by the back wheel ahead of you, grab anything that you could grab, a tuft of grass, a root, a tree, anything, and pull up and push that bike a little bit farther and just work your way up that hill. And invariably, I don't know if it was like a grass root thing or maybe a weight it had to support thing, but invariably the grass tuft I grabbed would rip loose and I would start to slide, but I would grab, I would reach, I would dig my fingers in. I didn't want to go back to the bottom of that hill. I didn't want to go all the way back down there. But you know what? Sometimes in our spiritual life, sometimes in our walk with Christ, maybe we've been fighting against addiction. Maybe we've been fighting against anger or our pride or lying or deceit or, or sexuality, pornography, whatever it is. We've been fighting these things. We've been dealing with these things. And we slip and we fall and we falter and we begin to slide. Folks, grab anything you can in that moment. Don't go back to the bottom of the hill. That doesn't actually have a lot to do with the message, but I just felt like you needed to hear that. <laughs> but this phrase, your faith may not fail, it carries more the idea of your faith giving out, of your faith expiring, being exhausted, 
of it being gone for good, of it maybe have never, never having been real in the first place. See, that's what Satan was after. Satan says, you let me at him. You let me have him. And I'll show you that it's not real. I'll show you that they are not true to you. And he was so wrong. He's not saying here, Peter, you can't have a failure. You can't have a falter in your walk. But he's saying, Peter, when you do, and you will, I'm praying that the seed of your faith remain intact and that you grow back from that seed. Brothers and sisters, we're going to fail and falter in our faith. But that does not mean that our faith has failed. Jesus knew Peter was going to be tested the hardest of all, so he singles him out. He knew Peter would take his own failure, probably the hardest of all of them, so he intercedes. And don't read into it, like I said, that he's not interceding for the others. I think he does, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. But he hones in on Peter here, and he says, Satan has asked to sift you, all of you, but Peter, I've especially prayed for you, and when you have turned again. There's a lot in those few words. And when you have turned again, so you can't turn again if you didn't turn before. And so if the turning again is a turning to a position to strengthen his brothers, then he's turning from a position where he's not in a very good place. Jesus is really predicting to him, Peter, you're going to wind up in a pretty bad place here, in a pretty bad spot, but you're not going to stay there. So there's this definitive prophetic statement, not an if you turn, but it's when you turn. That had to be sweet. Now, I don't think Peter got it at the point, because at, at that point, because after it, he still continues to say, oh, I'll never do that. I'll never mess up. I'll never deny you. He's going to fail. He's going to return, despite his declaration in verse 33, that he'll go to prison or even death for Jesus, which, by the way, he tried to do. He tried to do that. You know, a lot of times we look at Peter and we see that, you know, here he is in, in, the, in the courtyard and he denies three times, but what did he do before that? Do you actually think that when Peter's in the garden and Judas comes with the soldiers and the officers of the priests and he draws his little sword and goes after him, you think he thought he was going to prevail? Maybe he did. Maybe he thought Jesus would do something supernatural. I think Jesus did do something supernatural. That's the only reason Peter lived through that. It wasn't just the healing of the servant's ear. I don't know about you, but if there's a bunch of soldiers around. You draw your sword and go after them. They usually don't just stand, let's see what he's going to do with this. You know, they don't do that. They would have taken him out right there. So we, let's, let's not be too hard on Peter in his denial because when he said, I will go to prison, I will go to death, at best, prison would have been what resulted from that move. At best, it would have been what we now call suicide by cop. Where he went after them and knowing this is going to probably be a failed effort and I'm going to die, but I'm going to die protecting my Lord. That seems kind of extreme swings, doesn't it? But we see those really all through the Bible. You can see these extreme swings in people. You know what? We can have some pretty extreme swings ourselves. 
where we go from the pinnacle, from a spiritual high, maybe one of the, the, the most powerful experiences we've had with God or serving God or accomplishing something for the cause of Christ. And the next thing we know, we have done the worst thing that we can imagine, that thing maybe that we said we would never, ever do again. So Peter has ex- displayed this incredible courage And despite his devastated and crushed spirit when he denies the Lord three times, to which he responds by going out and bitterly weeping, despite all of that, he is going to turn again because Jesus said that he would. You know, Judas went out and hung himself. He had remorse. Peter went out and wept bitterly. He had repentance. You know, a little later on in verse 61, it says that um, after Peter denied Jesus the third time and the rooster crowed, that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Have you ever pondered what that look was? Have you ever thought about what, what, what that was all about? What look Jesus, you know, you know we, all, we have looks, don't we? We have the look that we can give to somebody, and and it means this, or it means that. You know, was it an I told you so look? Was it a a look of disgust or disdain or maybe just disappointment and sadness with Peter and, and where he had wound up? I don't think so. Now, I'm speculating here a little bit. I think it was a very reassuring, very forgiving look. I think it was a pleading look. I think what Jesus communicated in that look was, Peter, don't forget the rest of what I told you. Don't forget the rest of what I said. Don't forget that even though you're going to be sifted and you have been sifted like grain, don't forget that I said you will turn again. I think it was that kind of look. Why do I think it was that kind of look, that kind of look of acceptance and reassurance? One reason is because men don't respond to shaming looks. And the kind of look that makes a man go out and weep bitterly is a look of acceptance, not rejection. The kind of look that makes a man go out and weep bitterly is a look that says, I accept you, I forgive you. Not a look that places him on the defensive. So what's the rest of what? Jesus says to him, he says, when you have turned, you have a mission. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you turned again, strengthen your brothers. The idea of strengthening here is the idea of establish them. Help them to be established. Be an anchoring point for them. What greater way of of preparation for his calling than this crucible of his own failing, of his own fumble here? You know, this is, a, this is a moving story. It's a moving story that um, it's always been one of my favorite stories in the Bible. There's a really neat book called Intimate Moments with the Savior by Ken Geyer that goes through a lot of different account, encounters with Jesus uh, that were kind of those intimate times, those intimate moments in the life of Jesus. And this is a, a place where Jesus... And his disciples are having a, a, an intense time. It's, their time together is, is coming to an end. 
He's telling them that things are about to get really, really hard, and then it plays out in that way. But what's the takeaway for us in that? I don't want to start down a a path of of drawing a, a lot of kind of practical parallels to sifting in our life. I can get into some pretty thick theological weeds trying to do that. But what I can tell you, and what I really hope that you will remember every single day, what I hope you'll never forget on the very best day you have, when you feel like, you know, I was kind of on top of my spiritual game today. I didn't mess up much today. Now, of course, there's a lot of myth in that. But let's just say we had that thought. You know, I I don't think I cussed all day. You know, I didn't watch anything I shouldn't have on TV and had even gave money to that homeless guy. I've, I've, I've done the Christian thing really well today. On that day, and also on the day when you are at your absolute worst. On the day when you're like, everything I said I would never do again, I did today. Everything that I have prayed for God to take away from me, keep me from doing, stop me from doing, everything I've put accountability in my life to try to help with, all of it, I did it all today. Every last bit of it. It's been a horrible day in my Christian walk. Now, first of all, let me say that's a terrible way to look at your Christian life. But on those days and every day in between those, Jesus is also praying for you. Just as he's prayed for them. Just as he prayed for Peter. He's praying for us. He is speaking to the Father in our defense. That's what 1 John 2 tells us. And he is able, according to Hebrews 7, to save us to the uttermost who have drawn near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. We say to a brother or sister, and and we should say to a brother or sister, I'm really struggling, will you pray for me? Or we know somebody's struggling and we say, you know, I know you're really struggling. I know you're going through a really hard time, a time of, of loss or a time of, of, of just stresses and tensions. And, and I want you to know I'm, I'm praying for you. And that's what we should do. We should ask for prayer. We should give prayer and intercede for one another. But what we need to remember to say, what we need to remember to testify, is to say, I am really struggling Jesus is praying for me. I know you're really struggling. Jesus is praying for you. And if James 5 is true, and the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, brothers and sisters, how powerful and effective must the prayer of a sinless Savior be? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that Jesus is praying for us. He is interceding for us. He is giving defense on our behalf before the Father. Father, there are times we don't know how to pray. The Spirit prays for us. Father, make us faithful to intercession for one another. Father, also make us aware 
Help us realize every moment, every day, that the Savior prays for us. And Lord, as we view this intimate moment between Jesus and his disciples, particularly with Peter, when we think of what came after that and what followed, Father, many of us before the sun sets today will fail in something that we feel shame about, will fail in something that we have told ourselves we'll never do again. We've told you we'll never do again. We've denied I would ever do that again. And we will. And Father, your grace is sufficient. Father, may we never be in that position where we would believe that if we know Christ, that our faith has failed and we are no longer in Christ. Because we are sustained by your power. We are in your hand. We are not holding on to you. You're holding on to us. Don't let us forget that. In Jesus' name, amen.